Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Getting Hammered. This is Thanksgiving week. I hope all of you are having a great time. we got a lot to get into. International news, some from south of the equator. That is interesting. Uh, we got some polling news that doesn't look good for anyone, dramatically, actually. But before we get into all that, how's it going, Vic Mattis, my co-host from the Washington Free Beacon? Hello, Mary Catherine, and hello to all all our listeners, in case you happen to be stuck on Interstate 95 and it's snowing or something like that, particularly, I believe, up in the upstate New York area, it's about to get a little bit messy, but at least this is what what we're here for. No, we're we're here here for for. you, and when you're done with this, just, you know, replay the oldies and then come back again and then get to this one, you know, it's all good. I'm doing great. I wanted to tell you the other day, by the way, my daughter convinced Kate to watch the Barbie movie. Okay. She liked it. Kate liked it. She said it's it, it it's not as crazy woke as 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 I thought, but I didn't find out cuz I was downstairs instead watching a Netflix documentary on Ben Fong Torres. Ben Fong Torres was he was a senior editor and for Rolling Stone magazine. And he was always it was always like the Rolling Stone interview and inevitably it would be somebody like Ben Fong Torres. And I had seen him portrayed in the great Cameron Crowe movie, Almost Famous. Yes. And he is the kid's editor. Uh, And he says, crazy. And so I wanted to see what his story was as a fellow Asian American journalist. Mm -hmm. Okay. So his his upbringing, much harder than mine. I'll just say that. You know, he had to work in his father's Chinese restaurant, you know, struggling, struggling, you know. And so, but but it, it, it was, I'll tell you what's really interesting. When he was with Rolling Stone, which at the time was obviously the premier American music magazine of its time, everybody wants to talk to you. So he has tons of cassette tapes with everybody from, you know, Grace Slick to Led Zeppelin to, of course, he basically discovered the doors or made them famous by writing about them in Rolling Stone and Elton John and you name it. What's interesting is he then decides, you know, he's now old. He's an old man. He does this documentary and wants to revisit with some of the people he interviewed. Right. And it's interesting who has time and who really doesn't. Because this is something that Lester Banks says. He says it in (laughs) the real Lester Banks from Cream, but he says it in Almost Famous, which is where he tells the young Cameron Crowe to remember these people are not your friends. They're just using you. Because they want, you know, they want, they want a good, they got, they want a good review. They want publicity, you know, this is, and if you're no longer in that position, do they bother, you know, even taking the time? So I'm not going to go into who gave little bit, just a little bit of time. Although I think the briefest cameo was Elton John and he just basically walks out and he says, hi, how are you? And he gets in a little golf cart because he's going to the concert and there's Ben Fong Torres saying, thank you, sir. Thanks yes, for th- being here. Thank you, Sir Elton. I called Sir Elton. On the other hand, you know who was really generous with his time? Besides Jan Wenner, and I know he's not a great person, but Cameron Crowe. Oh, nice. And, and, and of course, Cameron Crowe, who later on became famous, wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and of course, I think Singles, and obviously Jerry Maguire, and Almost Famous, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And he was a kid, and Cameron Crowe says he, li- he lied to Ben Fong Torres when he did his first concert review because he was 15 years old (laughs) and then they finally met at a rolling stones concert and then after that ben fong torres calls cameron crow at his house and the sister answers and and the sister says oh by the way you know he's 16 because he had turned 16 
and they decided to add that into his next byline. Oh, you know, wow. Cameron Crowe is a 16-year-old. It's very funny. Anyway, <laughs> it's a, a, a very interesting. He was like the only serious journalist there when they started. You know, right. give me 750 words on X. Boom, done. He's a machine. Well, now they do, you know, hot takes and fake sexual assault stories. So that's... <laughs> it's it is not the same rolling it's stone. a different it's a different it's magazine fun. now this reminded me of a couple things one at yes. the end of this show i would like to get to a snoop dog story okay i was just thinking about famous musicians and write that down so i'm gonna i'm gonna get to that and i get i can riff on snoop dog but i just want to get to this one Ooh, interesting um two, cap- yes go ahead hold on two it reminded me when you said that, that your upbringing upbringing wasn't as hard as his yes of a very popular viral reel on instagram for you, those of you who don't know, reels are just TikTok for old people, but it's not owned by the CCP. So I'm on Instagram watching those. So there's a viral one where it compares first generation American children's problems with their parents' problems. Oh, yeah. It's like well, the I think first, I've seen that. Yes, the the first generation or the immigrant parents will say, like, well, the national party officials came and stole my dog and ate him. <laughs> and then the next generation is like, I don't know which hypoallergenic breed to get. Yeah. <laughs> and one was like, was an engineer in China, came to the U.S. and had to go through school again to get another degree. And then the kid is like, doesn't know if finance is really feeding her soul. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's about right. Yeah. That, 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 that's about right. I learned from, you know, you know, uh, I... I still learn even, you know, to this day from my father, little things that he'll mention that I hadn't heard before. And one thing that he recently mentioned was that his father kept him home for a year after, I think, high school or college because he said that he was too too weak and that he needed to work out and build up his, like, his body to become, because he said that he, he'll never survive in school, in college or medical school, because he was just this, this skinny kid. And so he took a, a year off from, from from school, and he. I said, "What did you do?" And he goes, "Well, you know, you 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 know, did some work on a sugar plantation and stuff like that." And 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 he for weights, he used like they had a shed, and it was like a piece from a railroad that they just you just lift up over. Yeah, his a railroad shoulders. tie. I love that. a railroad tie as a bench pressing with it. So, you know, again, not my. Not my problem, so I should. I know d- different different set of problems. A year for gains, I feel like, is something that Steve could be into. Uh, <laughs> so we'll see. A year Maybe. for gains. That's yeah. what he did. Okay, Mary. Instead Catherine, of oh, yeah. instead of a gap year, it's a gains instead, year. That's right. You wouldn't call it because I thought like, oh, did you, you, it's not like he went to travel somewhere for a year. You know, yeah. or some people go to like do missionary work. They go to a third world country. He was already in it. Right. So he, he, didn't <laughs> he didn't have, have to go anywhere. Well, he didn't have to go far. Oh my gosh! Speaking How are of, you? How you know are what? You? Speaking of perspective and things we are thankful yeah. for, let's yes, we should yes. do real quick just okay. Maybe what food we're so we're mo- most excited about because this okay. is coming out right before Thanksgiving. Absolutely. What's people what is, on the road? They're going to be starving when we're they're listening to this. <laughs> You'll get there soon. I do not have any plans to make anything particular what, this what year. Okay, so here's here's how we do it. You're just heating stuff up. No, I'm just a total waste of space. Like, I oh, just you're, show yeah, up. You're, gonna, you're, you're going somewhere. Okay, okay. That's I'm different. going somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not now, to be fair, I'd bring four grandchildren with me. So that's a pretty good contribution. That is a big um, contribution. But I do feel like because we travel, we don't, I don't ever do a ton of food prep. 
which is I'm not a terrible cook, but as everyone knows, I'm not great at planning. So getting things out of the oven at the same time and heated at the yeah. same time is not uh -huh. really my forte. Uh -huh. So I'm very glad I don't. That's what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that I don't have to do a full family dinner. Yes. I, I contribute I've never done that. I've never hosted. It's a lot. I contribute a side. I contribute mm -hmm. a dessert sometimes. I can make a decent mm -hmm. pie. I can, I can pull my yeah. weight in that respect. But my family doesn't do a huge Thanksgiving, but Steve's does. So we have a nice balance where yeah. we definitely get the, the big Thanksgiving with his family and my family all comes to it because yeah. we're close by and we don't really do a big Thanksgiving yeah, to no. the point that one year my parents just ignored Thanksgiving and the children insisted upon it and made no. it a, made a full turkey and dragged my parents' asses out of bed at 1130 at night and served them Thanksgiving dinner. That <laughs> That is impressive. They and also, no, I mean, for me, Thanksgiving is such a, it's sacred. I look forward, you know, I mean, of, you know, of all the holidays, as you know, well, not all the holidays. Okay. I don't want to get in trouble here. Obviously, you know, there's Christmas and Easter, but yeah, sacred, uh, sacred might be the wrong yeah, word, sacred, but it's for me. I'm like, I'm looking, I look so forward to this. And you know how you talk about, you know, with kids, you know, midway through Christmas day, they're done opening up the presents. Then that sort of malaise. And that tinge that sadness begins to yeah. set in that it's now over and it's another year. I feel like that halfway through the meal <laughs> where I start to get, I do, I start to get sad and I have to like, oh no, you know, that's the first plate. Now we're on the second. And then after that, that's why you need an after dinner drink as well. You know, Oh, that's I believe I me, that. I plan on it. So what are you looking for? You're looking forward to not doing. Yes, that's <laughs> that. But okay. so my. I, this is we're hit and miss on this, but my sure. dad does make, and I know a lot of people think that stuffing is trash food, and they reject it really as a side. Mm -hmm. I think it, yeah, it depends on what kind you're making. This is not fancy. It is a southern cornbread stuffing. Mm. I try real that. rich mm. with a lot of sage, and okay. we only make it once a year. Mm. It's very if sage we make it once a year, we don't even necessarily make it at Thanksgiving because it is very labor intensive and it is so good. <laughs> oh. So, so good. And I don't really love any other kind of stuffing, but my yes. dad makes that one. And so if that's there, I'm eating no, like a pound of no, that. You, you were raised to, you know, be like, to like that particular stuffing. Yeah. And I am the same exact way. The only stuffing that I absolutely love, the other stuffing's fine, but the other, the only stuffing I absolutely love was my mother's. And she made a French stuffing with chestnuts and roast pork and celery. And it was Ooh, that so sounds good. amazing. And you, but, and the secret is you had to cook it in the bird. Otherwise mm. it dries up. It has to be cooked in that cavity and it gets all roasty and crusty on the outside. Yep. So my father said that he found the, the recipe that my mother, well, he, she got it from our neighbor who's, who's French. And so she, she got it from him. So he gave my dad the recipe again. It's not the same. Uh, and so uh, it's like clearly my mother had made modifications. Well, there's also something about family food where, for instance, I don't make my family's pancakes. My mother makes pancakes that she inherited from her grandmother. Uh -huh. Okay. And luckily, her brother at one point made my great grandmother measure what she was putting in the pancakes. Yeah. Because she would just throw You're eyeballing. You're eyeballing otherwise. So they're these amazing buttermilk pancakes. And oh. I don't really like pancakes as a rule because I was spoiled with these. And they're just like all other pancakes yeah. to me are dry and yeah. tasteless yeah. and cakey and I'm not into yeah. it. Her pancakes, ridiculous. But mm. I have never learned to make them for this reason. 
I do feel like when you learn to make something that is sacred in your family like that, uh-huh. it takes some of the magic out of it. And like, well, that's when my, interesting. When my mother makes sweet tea or when my uh-huh. mother makes the pancakes, uh-huh. now I realize that I'm putting this weight on my mother and now I'm not helping her to do any of these things. I understand that. I'm a spoiled yeah. millennial in this yeah. way. But when she does it, it's just perfect. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's uh, just the best. I think uh, that, and hopefully you won't have to worry about this for many, many, many decades, but that changes. Uh, yes. When you then realize that the, the, you're the only one who's going to do it, or in the well, fact, so, don't do it. And so, so and my so brother, yeah. in, playing the role of my mother's brother, yeah. has already learned this talent. Yeah. And so oh, I think we will, we'll be leaning on him for his expertise yeah. forever. Yeah. But, but yes, yeah, so I definitely take advantage of that and, yeah. and my mother just to. I, me, I'm telling you, you got to document it. My mother also made these fantastic, uh, the Filipino egg rolls called lumpia, and they were just the perfect size about the size of your fingers and she had her and it was like deep fried she used a fry daddy and oh nice and the stuffing was ground pork and shrimp and some water chestnuts and you just chop it all and it makes a nice little mix but she had a whole way of doing it that's another project so i'm working on that but other than that you know what i am looking forward to is they tried it at kate's cousins last year and it was a big success because they did two different kinds of turkey it was the first time i ever had deep fried turkey Oh, it is so good. Wow. It is so good. There's no it's, going back. The crazy thing is it's so good and it's a shortcut. Like you don't, yeah. it's no, not as much time work. And it's the juiciness. Yes. And we have Captain Bill Dwyer supervising. Yeah. As long as you don't burn your home <laughs> yeah. down, then it's, you're pretty golden. Yeah. No pun intended on a fried turkey. <laughs> my, my dad still roasts turkey and it, do, it turns out great. Steve's dad does some smoking on the turkey and oh, I enjoy wow. that as well. So we have we have like all kind of all the kinds yeah. of things. So that that should be fun. I'm excited about it. All the cousins will be together. Oh, they'll love that. The kids will I, love that. It's exciting. You know what? You know what I did yesterday? What? Another another heralding the season moment. I attempted to take what might be a Christmas card picture. I don't know. I don't know oh, if we're going to oh, really? do a Christmas you, card. Uh, yeah. But I got everybody in some little Christmas jammies. Not matching ones. I just picked up a bunch of uh-huh. cheap green and red, most of them from Goodwill, yeah. and was like, here, children, put these on. And, and I got them on the kids, and I put them in a little, like, I have a little Christmas wagon. Like, it's a red, old-fashioned little wagon. Like a, a radio flyer. Yeah, um, and I put it, and actually, it's a little bigger than that, but yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Same principle. Uh-huh. And I put them in front of, like, the wood pile out in the, in the with the yes. green trees behind it. It's very rustic looking and everybody's in the wagon and look i had to improvise a little bit because i couldn't find a red shirt for the baby boy and so what i did was i took a a red t-shirt dress that belongs to his sister and i tied it up around his waist and i fastened it with a hair tie so nobody would know that this is what was happening the problem is that he knew oh he i swear I aggravated him. Yeah. Maybe he's just very heteronormative because he looks great in pictures almost all the time. And for this round of pictures, he was not having it, it mom. It, it, he was it, not having it. It didn't feel, it did not feel right. It didn't did feel, feel right, right to him. His soul said he needed just a regular t-shirt, mom. Not yeah, one of my sister's yeah. clothes. <laughs> yeah. That's, I guess, one way to find out. You actually got him inside the shirt then and then just tighten it from the back? Or? Yeah, I just tied yeah, it up okay. so 
Well, so nobody would know, but now everyone knows because I put it on a podcast, which is kind of my way. So um, I'm sorry about that. And also he paid me back for it because he just like turned his head for every photo. And then when he was looking at the camera was the most miserable I've ever seen him look, (laughs) which is a shame because everybody looked really cute and the setting was nice. And then we even had the dog with a little bow tie on, little red bow tie. And you know the dog can pose. Your dog, I know your dog can pose. That's the other mm-hmm. thing. So it's, uh, it's. I would still use a picture even with the, even with the baby because that's you know that's part of the that's part of the material. Part of the tra- the, the the, the charm of the thing. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what we can do. Okay. All right. We should get to the news. Ah, uh, let's do it. All right. Here we go. Just a little update on sort of foreign affairs in the Israel. Hamas war. Bernie Sanders is calling to make aid to Israel conditional on the way that Israel operates its war against Hamas. And a bunch of Democrats who are on Bernie Sanders' side for a bunch of stuff but are pro-Israel are saying, no, that sounds like a very bad idea. Telling another country you know, dangling the aid and saying, but then in order for you to get it, you must do X, Y, or don't do. In other words, you know, perhaps think about a ceasefire, perhaps leave Hamas in place. That's what it sounds like to me is that what they want is, I mean, the bottom line is Israel wants to eliminate Hamas. That's it. And I don't think anything is going to stop them unless one of those things happens to be aid to Israel. So, I mean, that's, that would be a huge deal. I can imagine other people are going to want to get on board with that. But at the same time, I cannot imagine Joe Biden being one of those people. There's no, so no here's way. So here's the list of requirements. And to Sanders' yeah. credit, he notes for several paragraphs what started this. And he's mm-hmm. very clear that it's a corrupt terrorist sure. organization. Sure. that began the war by slaughtering 1,200 innocent Israeli men, women, and children, but, and taking over 200 hostages. Then we get yeah. to what he wants is an end to the indiscriminate bombing which has taken thousands of civilians' lives and a significant pause in military operations so that massive humanitarian assistance can come into the region. The problem with that, of course, is that Hamas gets to regroup and rearm, and all that humanitarian assistance goes, we don't know where. He wants to focus on the right of displaced Gazans to return to their homes. Again, not feasible while you're trying to get rid of Hamas. No long-term Israeli reoccupation or blockade of Gaza, which means, again, if you're doing no blockade, that means things are coming freely into this area when you have not yet eliminated even even by the way even when they complain that you know hamas is you know like is a prison and hamas gaza is a prison and that you know that the israelis had them surrounded and the egyptians won't let them down south still somehow magically they were able to get all these weapons yeah magical and then an end to settler we get settler violence in the west bank we get into the west bank issues and then a commitment to broad peace talks for a two-state solution in the wake of the war dean phillips also put out something this week. Dean Phillips is the representative who's running against President Biden. And Mm -hmm. we'll see some numbers later in the show that may suggest that that's a good plan to run against Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. But his was very morally clear, much more than Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders's call. He said, you know, let's, he wants to do a ceasefire, but he he says, look, the hostages need to be returned first. Obviously that's first. Okay. Good. Order of operations, correct. Mm-hmm. He's morally clear about who the bad guys are. But he also says, like, after this, we need to work together towards, like, mutual security and a plan for coexistence. To which I say to all the people calling for ceasefire in all its forms, they're pretending that that hasn't been 
Israel's goal yeah. since the beginning of yeah. its existence. The first yeah. Israeli plan was two states side by side. That's right. And it wasn't the Israelis who took up arms objecting to that. Right. It was, was the other side. There was a very generous deal that was offered, as you know, at the very end of the Clinton administration. Oh my gosh, this yes. Was, you know, I, I mean, if you remember, the, you know, it was it, it, it was Clinton and it was, now I'm forgetting who the prime minister of Israel was at the time. Yitzhak Rabin? That's it. Okay. Because I remember at the time when they were trying to have a two-state solution at the very end of the Clinton administration, and they were all on the cover of Time magazine, right? And I think it was Yitzhak Rabin, but it was definitely Clinton. And then, of course, it was Yasser Arafat, right. the peacemakers. And they in 2000, there was a very generous offer on the table for a two-state solution for you know a Palestine, and Arafat turned it down. He, it, it, he turned it down because he said supposedly he was there was no way he could accept it. He could not bring this back. Except for can what we actually, reason? I'm going to play a little clip of oh. Bill Clinton speaking, okay. I believe, contemporaneously about this deal. Depends on whether you care what happens to the Palestinians as opposed to the Hamas government and the people with guided missiles. Yes, they were. Yes, they were. No, wait a minute. Yes, they were. And Hamas is really smart. When they decide to rocket Israel, they insinuate themselves in the hospitals, in the schools, in the highly populous areas, and they are smart. So they try. So they wait, wait, wait. They, so they try to put the Israelis in a position of either not defending themselves or killing innocents. They're good at it. They're smart. They've been doing this a long time. Look, I don't agree. I killed myself to give the Palestinians a state. I had a deal they turned down that would have given them all of Gaza, wait, wait, all of Gaza between 96 and 97% of the West Bank, compensating land in Israel. Exactly as we were just talking about. Yeah, like, first of all, thank you to both Clintons for being very clear yeah. about the situation when they are heckled in public over this. And Clinton does deserve yeah. to point he out- He that yelled I, at Arafat about this. Yes, that I attempted to- Yeah. Negotiate something that was very good. Yeah, it was a great so, deal at the time when probably the protester was uh, maybe born or not born. Right, a exactly. Child. Exactly. Probably but they know better. very young. Yeah. But yeah, I, I do hate this part of the conversation where people just ignore that on like five or six yeah. occasions, five or there six have been years. offers yes. of a state mm -hmm. that would be alongside Israel. Right. And that's not what often leadership of the Palestinian people wants. And Frankly, looking at polling, it's often not what Palestinian citizens want. Now, that yeah. doesn't mean that those civilians should be subject to the kind of thing that, frankly, Israelis are subject to at the hands of Hamas or anything like that, which is why the IDF treats them differently than Hamas treats Israeli citizens right? and is being careful. But they've it's, been offered yeah. side by side mutual security. No, and it is, it is more and more a gray zone as we're seeing more evidence come out that in these attacks, it wasn't just Hamas, but uh, also some ordinary... Palestinians right. who were involved in this terrible operation. And that the only other thing is that I would add is we now know, based on you know Hamas talking to the media, that their plan has been for the last few years, you know, not to govern. Again, they've said this before, but 
to just kill as many Israelis as possible. They, they have no interest in that. They have no interest in caring for their own people. That's the United Nations responsibility. Their sole focus is to attack. Yeah. By the way, Jeff Merkley, who's a senator from Oregon, yeah. very, very liberal, called for a ceasefire. But do you want to hear what the ceasefire entails? Oh, yeah. What do we got? Hamas must release all the hostages without conditions and lay down their arms. And Hamas, which continues to defend the savage slaughter of Israeli citizens on October 7th and advocate for the obliteration of Israel, has to go. It can no longer have operational control of Gaza. Well, if that's what a ceasefire is, then that's yeah. what the Israeli government yes. and citizens and IDF want as well. But I think that Merkley is just using the word ceasefire because that's the word that his constituents demand. And yes, that's right. And 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 the pushback against poor Merkley, where they say this is not a ceasefire, this is unconditional surrender. Would that be a bad thing? Yeah, I know. Why don't we want that? I that sounds that we sounds want fine. That. Uh, your ter your terms yeah. are acceptable, as the meme says. Yeah. Did you see? Did you see that Elon Musk? First of all, he agreed with some guy who was like, basically, this is. Some guy on Twitter tweeted something along the lines of this is chickens coming home to roost for mm. liberal Jewish people who oh. have acquiesced okay. to this woke ideology. Did he hit where, the heart or did he hit the repost? Oh, no, he affirmed it in like oh. he he tweeted. It was like what you have said is true. Okay. Oh, OK. Um, <laughs> so then I think in 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 a reaction to getting in trouble for that. Yeah. Because Elon Musk is always tweeting yeah. dumb and sometimes terrible things on his own platform, which sure. then loses value for the platform. He, Elon Musk said Friday that ex-users who deploy the terms, quote, decolonization and, quote, from the river to the sea and other similar euphemisms that, quote, necessarily imply genocide will be suspended from the social media platform. Clear calls for extreme violence are against our terms of service and will result in suspension, Musk wrote on the platform, formerly known as Twitter. Okay, I think from the river to the sea does imply that, However, I think decolonization, if you follow it to its logical ends, does as well. I also think that these words should not necessarily be off limits. Like if you're talking about yeah. real threats, like actual specific threats of physical violence, sure, threats to come after people, like right. those are already against the rules. I do think these, I mean, because they are euphemisms to some extent, mm -hmm. I don't think that those should be off limits. Yeah, I, it, it's a real test for the for for free speech advocates yeah. because you know we always say about you know you know we will you know defend your right to say terrible things. But the question is how terrible are we talking? So I mean that's yes. really what it is, and if it's direct violence or not. I mean the one benefit of having you know people be able to say some of these things is well now we know where you stand. Yes, you know. No, so I mean to the, me I'm I'm okay with that. Again, yeah. I just think that I think the bounds should be pretty wide, and I. Yeah pretty sure that he is reacting to having gotten in trouble sure sure with although i mean now x or twitter i mean that's it's his own private company he can do whatever he yep. wants it goes with, yeah that's the the stipulation always is that yep. this is not the government doing he it paid he, for it he can do that yeah uh let me try to find the i'm going to read the tweet this is a quote nobody attribute this to me that he affirmed jewish communities have been pushing the exact kind of dialectical hatred against whites that they claim to want people to stop using against them. And he said, that is true. So Beware of any deployment of the word dialectical hmm. or dialectical. Yeah, yeah, you that's, have, that's, yeah, that's, you, that's, you have been duly warned. Yeah, um, anytime I see they go, oh, hold on now. Okay. All righty. Uh, you know, I do want to mention, by the way, yeah. one of our star reporters here at The Beacon, Alex Schemmel, he had recently reported on Brown University's chapter of Students for Justice in Palestine, 
and the the internal thread, the exchange, the conversation exchange they had after the October seven attack. We've been talking about this, Mary Catherine, on a few episodes about you know were they are they celebrating or are they condemning? Right? Is it mm-hmm. please stop the cease? You know, we demand ceasefire, stop the siege, or end the occupation before even right. anything happened, or are they actually celebrating the attack? And Here's a quote from that exchange among the students at this Ivy League school at Brown for at Students for Justice of Palestine. Somebody says, recognizing that this was in fact a victory, a statement that dismisses violence, kind of dismisses the resistance, tone of mourning, maybe inappropriate. That's how they felt. Jeez. I mean, that's how that's that's where it is. I mean, they have a serious problem, and it is going to be interesting as more and more campuses have to decide whether or not they want to keep organizations like this uh, on campus. Well, and Uh, again, like even before you get to the organization and whether it should belong, Mm -hmm. look, first, again, without getting too controversial at all, if people engage in violence, vandalism, shouting people down, physical threats to others, those are already against the rules and not speech. Yeah. You can get those people in trouble. They can be punished, thereby sending the message that this is not the right way to express yourself on campus. Not the right things to express. We're not policing speech, but we're policing beyond speech. Instead, you have a place like Harvard where like a couple of students occupied a building in the basement for a day or two and like had demands for the college. And they were like, the the demands for the university were like, I need to put out a statement for a media effing seafire. And that's right. actually how she said it. I'm not even exaggerating. The vocal fry and the lilt were very real. And I'm just like, are we really taking this seriously? But And they're, and they're the future leaders of, of, of America. Well, and here's the problem. Is that what happens? They, at some point, the administration said, y'all can't bring like food and comfort to these people who are occupying this building. We need to get them out of the building. Yeah. And then they went weak need on that. And oh, what happened? They, they An deli- administrator yeah. brought them burritos, burritos. Yeah. into the building. And Twizzlers. Now, I, you know what? If you, by the way, I would be so offended if I got the Twizzlers. Like, really? Those are the choices? Uh-oh. This is, this is fighting words for Steve. It's his favorite candy. Oh, really? Twizzlers? Yeah. Also, just to end with this, I just wanted to note that yeah. an NBC report said that U.S. drones are running over Gaza looking with like high quality cameras for hostages inside Gaza. And they are running those operations from Creech Air Force Air Force Base in the Nevada desert. So it's nice to hear that that is going on. That was a thing I hadn't yeah. heard before. And just a reminder that Abigail Idan is a three-year-old American child yeah. who has been missing and is in Gaza, as far as we know, since October 7th. Her father was a Ynet photographer he ran mm-hmm. out to take pictures two of his children at one point all of his children ran outside realized what was happening went back inside two of them the older siblings into their own house the three-year-old ran to the neighbor's house where that whole family was murdered and she was yeah. taken and i just why aren't we hearing more about people like her yeah like we just sort of gloss over that i did see that Dean Phillips actually answered a, a tweet from Bethany Mandel the other day because he said he was doing Ask Me Anything on Twitter as yes. candidates who are running against incumbent president do to get a lot of attention. Yeah. And yeah, she of said, well, what would you do about an Abigail Idan? And he said, I would, you know, do everything within presidential power to 
get the word out about people who are there and send special operations in there if yeah. at all possible. You have uh, and Americans tell, there. But I just feel like our the urgency has not been even rhetorically or in no. media no. what even you would think it should be. Again, we've talked about this and I keep on saying I do hope that behind the scenes we're doing yeah. everything we can, not just diplomatically, because if you're going to rely on, you know, you know, Jake Sullivan or Anthony Blinken to get to get them out, I'm not so sure. But if we actually have some sort of military special ops component that is doing something, again, they have taken American hostages. What are you doing about it? That's the thing. And again, I there's all this talk about whether or not they're going to be releasing Hamas is going to be releasing a lot of hostages at the time of this taping. It's still sort of unclear. It's you you have to think that for Hamas at some point their kidnapping children is not a good look for them. Yeah. But on the at the same time, you know, the number of people who are now just openly siding uh, with them and against Israel is really surprising. While they and, still yeah. have a three year old in their custody, I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing. No, um, it is. And I should, I should correct yeah. myself very briefly. Abigail ran to the neighbor's house. The father of that home put her with his three kids and his wife. Okay. He went out to try to help other people, came back, and they were all missing. So we actually, oh all of those yeah. family oh. is, is likely in Gaza. A and we mother, hope will come home. A mother of two children who are kidnapped and hostages as well. She wrote in the Washington Post an op-ed talking yeah. about how she wants her kids back. Yeah. You know, and... The pushback against her, it's so disturbing because- That's wild that there's pushback. Yeah. They're saying, well, don't you care about the you know, the children of Gaza? That's and wild. And she says, yes, I do, but I just want my- Well, you know, and so you're not going to- you know, they. I don't think a lot of these people will ever be placated. No. Anyway. This is- I don't, I don't know if it's the same piece or not, but Mayan Zen has That's two her. daughters- That's 15 and ele- Okay. And 15 yes. and eight who are there. And this part really got me- She's she's asking to go to Gaza to help her right. girls. She says, you have failed to free my girls, so take me to Gaza. My bag is packed. I will take mm-hmm. only a few items, chocolate milk that my daughters love, shoes that are good for running, and a new bandage for Ayla. The last photograph we have of her in captivity shows that she is injured. Take me to Gaza so I can change her bat- bandage. Take me to Gaza so I can yeah. change her bandage is the perfect gutting maternal yeah. message. Of, co- of course that's what she wants to do. Of that, course that's what she wants to do. I couldn't imagine even like, how do you go to sleep knowing where they are? You know, I mean, it's. So I know it's hard to think about these things. I think about the 10 month old Kafir Bibas, who's there, who is the exact same age as my youngest every day. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to think about, but it also puts a lot of perspective into our own lives and really, really, really good reasons to be thankful for what we have. And also to pray for those who are separated from their families, both by war or by hostage taking at this point. So we will we'll move, move on to a slightly lighter subject oh, now. Yeah. NBC News polling. My goodness. As the war between Israel and Hamas rages on, it is having a transformative impact in our politics. We have a brand new NBC News poll out this morning, which shows the toll it is taking on the president. I'm joined now by national political correspondent Steve Kornacki to take us through the numbers. Steve, some real stunning highlights here in this poll. Absolutely, and I think you're right to set it up that way. What's happening in the Middle East, it really does seem to be connecting with what's happening domestically in our politics. Let's start with the bottom line here. President Biden, what is his job approval rating? We measure it now at 
40% with 57% disapproving the significance. That is the lowest President Biden has ever measured in our poll in terms of job approval. And just look at the sea change from the start of this year. Remember, early this year, Democrats coming off a strong 2022 midterm. He was almost even. Now he's 17 points underwater on this question. Significant dip there, Steve. It, it is. And you can actually, if you take a look here by party, I think it's significant for two reasons. One, independence, obviously, more than two to one disapprove. You don't want to be there as an incumbent president, but I think equally significant, no surprise, 7% of Republicans approve of Joe Biden's job performance, but three times as many Democrats, 21%, that's more than one in five, say they disapprove. You need much more unified support in your own party if you're going to have a successful re-election campaign. And we mentioned the drop in that approval rating and the connection to the Middle East, and here it is. On foreign policy, 33% approve of Joe Biden's job performance. Just in September, we asked the same question, and it was 41.53. These numbers surprised our own pollsters, Steve, with one saying he cannot remember a time when a foreign entanglement that didn't involve U.S. troops had the capacity to transform the electorate. And that's not the case in this poll. No, and it, go even a step further on this one. I think this jumps out at you, too. Overall, this is the handling of the Israel-Hamas war. And again, it kind of measures overall up with Biden's foreign policy approval. But look at this. Among the oldest group of voters, 65 plus, there's a majority who approve of how Biden is handling this. That's plus 12. Look at the youngest group of voters. 20 approve, 70 percent disapprove. He is 50 points underwater with the youngest group of voters. That is a 62-point net swing between youngest and oldest on this topic of Israel and Hamas. And it's a critical group of voters that he needs in order to win re-election, that's for sure. Absolutely. So we're showing you Biden's problems here, and the question is, who will the Republicans nominate to oppose him? And again, Donald Trump towering above the field here, two others in double digits. Compare this to our last poll. And again, Trump is steady. The only growth you're really seeing, the only change, it's right there. Nikki Haley, she grew last time. She grew a little bit more this time into double digits. And those numbers are fueled by non-Trump voters. I've been talking to sources inside Trump world who say they're not panicking because of that. But it's clear she's got some real momentum here, Steve. She does, and her challenge is just what you say. You look at voters who call themselves conservative, very conservative. They're very pro-Trump. They seem a little reluctant, a little resistant to her. She's got a breakthrough, not just with moderates and independents. She's got a breakthrough with core Republican voters who like Donald Trump, if she wants to make this a real game with Trump. Okay, so if we are heading towards Trump, Biden, a rematch in 2024, how does that look in our polling right now? Here it is. Wow. Donald Trump, we have at 46%. Biden, 44 And this is significant because this is the first time in the history of our poll that former President Trump beats President Biden still within the margin of error, but still significant. Yeah, it's 2019, 2020, when Trump was president, he trailed all of them. This year, he's trailed all of them in our poll. First time in more than a dozen polls, we've seen a result like this. Some of the other ingredients that go into that, Biden has long had an advantage over Trump on likability. Look, at the start of this year, 39% said they had a positive view of Biden, barely 30 of Trump. We've seen consistently a gap like this. Now, the gap is gone. Mm. 
36 positive on both, and actually Biden one point more negative than Trump. That's been a significant advantage for Biden. Our poll says that advantage, at least for now, may be gone. And we talked about younger voters on foreign policy, and it's true on a host of other topics. Disaffected with Joe Biden, we have 46% for Trump, 42% for Biden among the youngest voters. The youngest voters in the 2020 election were Biden plus 26. This could be a massive sea change. And if you take a look here, too, all, everybody sort of says, hey, I'm not too nuts yeah. about the possibility of this matchup. So we said, let's measure this one way. And here's how we did it. Biden against an unnamed Republican. This is just a referendum on Biden, basically. And look at this. He goes from being in a, a dogfight with Trump to being double digits wow. behind. But then flip it around. Trump against an unnamed Democrat. Trump goes from leading against Biden to being down by six points against the Democrat. Just a fascinating look at the state of the race with just a little under a year to go. So she, she goes on to like, it's funny, a lot of the NBC on-air anchors were sort of incredulous because the numbers were so bad that they kind of didn't want to take this in. But it, the whole thing sort of affirms that we are, because the Trump numbers as well, even though Trump is leading, that these two people are the least liked people who could possibly run for president. <laughs> How did we get here? Uh, because if you look at, for example, Nikki Haley running against Biden, she does. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Trump is, you know, why should Trump get out of the race? Because he's beating him. Now, well, yeah. Despite, so that, that's despite the his thing, 91 right? indictments. But, yes. but, but Nikki Haley does so much better. I remember early on when some of these polls came out indicating that uh, Trump was leading in battleground states or that he was beating Biden. They immediately told us, no, 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 no. Outliers. Outliers. Yeah. It's not it's not real. It's, I don't think it's, it's an outliner. Now, it, now it may up. it may be an expression of anger that does not translate eventually into votes. But that's not necessarily true because a lot of people yeah. are looking at their finances and looking back yeah. at the Trump presidency and going, I mm -hmm. don't know, like, I don't like the guy, but it was better than right. he also has very serious problems among young voters, among voters oh, aged across the 18 board. to 34. Biden saw 42 percent support. That's compared to Trump, who led him with 46 percent support. The poll is an early warning for Biden's campaign ahead of the 2024 presidential election, as reported by USA Today. This one that young voters could be peeling away from him, could be peeling away from him. If Trump is leading by 4% in that yeah. demo, you have a problem. An exit poll from NBC News in 2020 found Biden won voters age 18 to 29 by more than 20 points. Yeah. Yeah. So he has many problems. I'm going to go. The, the first one is across the board for Biden. Again, he is not popular, whether it be foreign or domestic issues. Right. So you mentioned the foreign policy. That's a big, that's a very large problem, not just for him, but for the Democratic Party, but him in particular, because of course he's the guy who's running for president. I don't think he's going to be able to please either side of his party. The Republicans have been pretty solid where they stand when it comes to uh, Israel. So I mean, it, it, it's a it, it's a nice solid block for them. The other issue, of course, was is the border, and and, and you know people are like let's not forget about that. The Democrats have tried in the past to blame Republicans. Mm -hmm. But the problem is the Republicans, you know, back in 2020, were, were, were the ones being attacked for saying they want a wall and how insensitive and how terrible for us to want to slow down illegal immigration and to and to want a border wall. People don't forget that. So they, after telling them that now they have to be for it, 
they're in a bad spot. And then, of course, you talk about the economy. When you talk about things like inflation, for example, they're like, hey, it's, you know, look, inflation's going down. No, the the amount that costs are rising continue to go up. They're just not going up at the same rate as it was last time. That's the right. difference. Like the cost of Thanksgiving, they say it's, you know, oh, it's cheaper. It's a little lower you know, yeah, it's than last year. Yeah, it's still 25% more than when he took office. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he can't, I mean, you know, and you can't talk about mortgages. I think, you know, the average, you know, mortgage payment was something like $8,000 a year. Now it's 24000 or something to that effect, right? So he's, and here's the other problem. And he can't do anything about it, which is his age. He just turned 81. Yeah. But did you see, by the way, I saw this on X. He is now joined threads. Oh, well, that'll probably solve it. That um, is also, I, by the way, I just joined classmates.com. I hope to I'm, see you there. I'm on Friendster. Oh, Friendster. Um, good, good, good. I'll, I'll look for you. We'll check in with each other there. Yeah. No, I mean, look, it's better than TikTok. Uh, I'm not sure we wanted that. Yes. So, <laughs> no, there was a, was the picture that was going around of him celebrating his 81st birthday with, with just like cake? the cake was just like, did they literally put 81 candles on it? Because you don't have to do that after a while. You can just, I've, I'm in my 40s and I don't do all the candles. You know, you could just put the the, the number eight and one with the candle, the, the wick on top. That yeah, counts. And, or even like, oh, sometimes we'll do uh, just one per decade or something. I you don't know. know what was going on. Just, just, there was no way there were 81 candles. I think it was like an inferno. I mean. Yeah. I, so I guess the calculation there would be, well, we don't want an eight and a one because that's just going to broadcast exactly how old he is. But I feel yeah. like the the inferno yeah. on top yeah. of the cake also doesn't send a great message. Anyway, like the thing about Biden's age and look, they're, they're, the argument from the Biden campaign somewhat logically will be, look, Biden was a senior when Trump was a freshman, to which I say, sure, but that was 64 years ago. but the difference is now he's they are correct but age looks very different when you get up to this level right and trump's 77 even though i think he says crazy things looks more energetic more with it quicker yeah and more mobile frankly than biden's Mm -hmm. 81 biden's Uh, 81 i think is actually being cushioned a lot by the press who is not really being straight about just how yeah. bad things might be and is downplaying it quite a bit but it's not great and like that's why yeah. it's you can just see it and that's why so many people in these polls very clearly think yeah. that that's a problem no there is a big difference when you get to a certain age range and and some people just age better than others Rosalind Carter just you know she made it to 96 which is very oh, impressive yes. my my father-in-law so he is now, I believe, 81 or 82, actually. And he's very spry. He's upright. He's lean. He looks, you know, and he once brought a friend and this fellow was hunched over with a cane. He, and and he, I, I don't want to use the word tottering, but I mean, he, it took him a long time to walk, right? Walking was very difficult. So I thought this was somebody who was older than him. And he says the guy was 70. And wow. so, I mean, it's just these yeah. things happen. Now, here's my other thought. It's a shame that Biden has to downplay his birthday because normally it would be a big to-do for anybody, let alone a president of the United States. And it's also a big to-do when you reach a certain age, like after 80, every birthday should be special. And and the reason is because you don't know if it's the last one. You know, this is why you do this. And this one, they're like really just hiding it. 
Last year they hit it because I think his birthday was on the same day as the the wedding of of, of his daughter. So this this time though, it's they just you know had a giant cake with flames. Okay, <laughs> and there is this. Well, you can't have a bounce house, you know. That's not going to go <laughs> well. um, even for him. Yeah. yeah. So the the poll also showed, by the way, this fracture among Democrats on Israel. Mm-hmm. NBC News noted that only half of Democratic voters, fifty one percent approved of Biden's handling of the conflict. Nearly 60% of independent yeah. voters said they That's disapprove, right. while 70% of Republicans said the same thing. Now, 70% of Republicans are just disapproving That's because obvious. it's Biden. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but they're not disapproving because he's pro-Israel. And then among young people, NBC News noted that the poll found that his support largely eroded among Democrats who believe that Israel has gone past the line of its military action in Gaza, as well as among voters 18 to 34. Among this age group, 70% disapprove of Biden's handling of the war. Yeah. 70%. Now, some of those would be Republican young people, but there aren't that many of them. <laughs> yeah. No. Hugely. So his numbers are bad. And like, like I said, I, I don't think there's any way for him to win because, you know, he's going to upset somebody within his, within the yeah. party ranks, within that, within his, his group. Right. Here's my question for you. Trump's lead, right? Something like 46 to 44, according to the poll right now. And he leads in the battleground states. Does that change once Trump becomes the nominee and he is in on TV more and people are reminded about all of his rants, haranguing yeah, no, the insanity. I, and then I was no, wait a minute. Now I got, I'm, I, now I'm faced with, do I go with the crazy guy who I forgot about or the old man who doesn't know what's going on? Well, so yes, all, all of this is, and by the way, a lot of this is contingent on the camp of people who dislike both nominees. Those are the people who matter. Those oh, are the sure. people who we're going to be yeah. interested in. Otherwise, everybody in. else is locked in no matter what. It's not yes. like there's some other scandal that's going to shock no, that's uh, people actually, about Trump. Like, what? I didn't know this about him. One of the perverse incentives of our system uh-huh. is that the reason both of these guys are consider are like the both parties are like, I don't know, so we're going to do this, yeah. is precisely because they are so old and so bad that we know everything yeah. bad about yeah. these old bastards. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Right. And even, yes, well said. And even with, 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 and with Biden, that shine is off. Remember he was, you know, this folksy old guy and, 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 and he, he was the opposite of Trump and he was going to play, you know, he was going to be this nice guy. And now all these other things come out and it turns out. No, but it's, it's wild that that's the, that that's the advantage, right? When, when people say, well, like DeSantis and Nikki Haley and Dean Phillips, for instance, or whoever, Well, they'll have to be introduced to the American people and we'll find out all these bad things about them. Are they going to be worse than these things, guys? Yeah. Yeah. The things we already know. But look, all those people who hate both guys, Mm -hmm. I think are going to be weighing what was my, what was my interest? What were interest rates before? What was my family income like before? How much did it cost to buy my family meat before? Like these are things. You really can, you really can ask that question, which is, Mm -hmm. are you better off now than you were four years ago? Yes. For a lot of people. And 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 by the way, in an obs- observation that I'm stealing from John Podhoretz, sure. Trump uniquely, unlike Reagan, mm-hmm. when he asks that question, can say, "By the way, who was the person in charge four yeah. years ago? It was me." Yeah, and it was me. And now I'm coming back. <laughs> so- <laughs> well, and then, like the number of people who feel like that's a threat or a promise is going to be the deciding. Here's the other. Here's the-, the other thing. You know, the media, a lot of the media, not all the media, feel very strongly about uh, Trump that they refuse to show him, right? As often as possible, they're not showing him. But I think by continuing to not show him, 
Trump's yep. numbers will probably continue, will, will go up, won't they? So I, re- this- I remember this with on CNN and Jake Tapper immediately dismissed Trump's response to something on TV and said, we're not going to show what he has to say because we don't have time to you know, vet all the lies and everything else. Right. So they didn't. If that is a general policy, then he continues to uh, go through the election with people having only sort of gauzy memories. Well, I think you're right because he he is he is a bit and the the Trump lovers are going to hate me for this one. But he is a bit the Hillary Clinton of the Republican Party where more exposure to him. Oh, right. Leads to less affinity for him. Right. Yeah. And however, like chaos also redounds to his benefit and he's great at like TV and being compelling and all of that stuff. So the truth is, I don't know what the answer is, but these numbers are depressing for the country and the head to heads look better with almost anyone else. And I just think this is going to be like a demoralizing trip if we're going to stick with this. I mean, you really can't imagine that 2024 is going to be this election between two people who a lot of people don't like, and yet here we're heading there. And I don't know how that, you know, everybody says, we say this every four years, is the most important election of our lifetime. Right. I'm telling you, 2024, this is like end of times now. This This is is really it, it, guys. After that might be the rapture. I don't know. Okay. Oh my goodness. Okay. We got a couple stories to fit in here. So I want to to do it. Let me cover Argentina first. Oh yeah, sure. By the way, I'm just going to ask you and reveal my ignorance. Do you know how to pronounce his name? Millet? Millet? Okay. I assume it's one L. So if there were two L's, it would be like, yeah. Right? I think. Yes, I think so. So Javier Javier Millet, Mm -hmm. I'm going to read to you from Reason. Yes. The self-described classical liberal and anarcho-capitalist who won Argentina's presidential election on Sunday campaigned with a brash message of slashing government programs, cutting taxes, and privatizing state-owned enterprises. Whether he'll be able to accomplish any or all of that prodigious list of economic reforms, or his even bigger promise to fix Argentina's busted monetary system and curb the country's runaway inflation, will depend on how much support Millet can muster in the legislature and his willingness to follow through on these big campaign trail promises. Those are issues of great importance for the future of Argentina, but they are questions that cannot be answered today. What can be definitively answered is the political question raised by Millet's candidacy for Argentina's highest office. Can voters experiencing economic turmoil be persuaded that government is the problem rather than the solution? Looks like the answer might be yes. He won more than 56% of the vote in the final round of Argentina's election. That's a that's an impressive it number. Is. And people, the victory seems, by the way, hold on one little tidbit yeah. here. The victory seems to have been driven by young and working class voters. So look, that's like a wish list for me. What was it? Gov- slashing government programs, cutting taxes, and privatizing state-owned enterprises. Okay, well, <laughs> not only that, I'd, li- I'd like to point out that, uh, of course, he is, uh, he's pro-life, right? He says he's pro-life. Yes. He, 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 he. He did call the Holy Father, I think, a filthy leftist or something to that effect. <laughs> you will find a good chunk of uh, Catholics kind of be mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, continue. So far, so good. And he weirdly, he has cloned dogs. He's sure. like four cloned mastiffs. And he also, oh, and he's a, a reserve goalie for his local like soccer team, football, football team. Mm-hmm. And he also practices tantric. So, uh, I mean. Well, li- you know, he's I'd a like man to, of many talents. A man uh, of many, yes. He'll bend over backwards for you. Uh, he's I also, just, I think, is, he's also, isn't he pro-Israel as well? Oh yeah, yeah, I yeah. believe so. Well, he's converting to Judaism. Yes. So, where yeah. does he find the time? I don't know, especially because I hear the tantric stuff takes up. A I lot know. Of it. I mean, that's um, a huge chunk of time. So, Man. I want to, I want to play. He also has a now. Now, here's the thing: there are going to be tons of sort of lazy 
comparisons uh-huh. to Trump and to uh-huh. Trump's base. And I, I think having read a bit about what's actually driving him and driving this, it, look, of course, there's like some populist anger with the establishment. Sure. Okay, so that's the that's the thread here. But what he's campaigning on is quite different than yeah. what Trump pushes, which is much more of a look, you're mad at the establishment. I'm going to take over the establishment and wield it in your honor. Whereas this guy's like, no, I'm going to tear down the instruments of power in these specific ways. So he seems much more purely like an an ideological libertarian than Trump is. What he does have in common with Trump is a weird hairstyle and a very colorful TV presence. So I'm going to play this little clip of him, which is in Spanish. But what he's doing is he's naming various sort of DEI style uh, government offices and then ripping the names of them off a whiteboard. (laughs) And tossing them aside. So I want you guys to hear a little bit of this. <laughs> Ministry of Women, Genders, and Diversity. Out. Public Works. Out. Science, Technology, and Innovation. Out. You know, so he's just so, like you know, tossing them over his head. Gingrich is like, sign me up. I got to get down there. I got to get down to Argentina. You know, what the great thing is they can share the MAGA merchandise because it's just make Argentina great again. That's that's a it's good point. Good. That's a good point. So that's going on there. Meanwhile, yeah. back in the States, can we do a now it can be told? Oh, yeah. oh man. Gosh, this one's terrible. It is. This is the New York Times editorial board, y'all. The startling evidence on learning loss is in. Is it now? Is it, guys? (laughs) All right, I'll just read the first few paragraphs to start. In the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic, Congress sent $190 billion in aid to schools, stipulating that 20% of the funds had to be used for reversing learning setbacks. At the time, educators knew that the impact on how children learn would be significant, but the extent was not yet known. The evidence is now in, and it is startling. The school closures that took 50 million children out of schools out of classrooms at the start of the pandemic may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history of American education. Ah, who would have thunk? It also set student progress in math and reading back by two decades and widened the achievement gap that separates poor and wealthy children. Oh, look at that. These learning losses will remain unaddressed when the federal money runs out in 2024. Okay. And basically collect yourself, it's, it's, collect basically, yourself, Mary Catherine. Basically goes on to say like, this is a yeah. generational disaster. Well, yes, that is a thing that we were all saying in 2020. And if your only source of information was the New York Times, it's taken three years now for this to dawn on you that, oh my goodness, this yeah. was the worst thing. And what did they say? Quote, may prove to be the most damaging disruption in the history yes. of American education. If only somebody told them. Yeah. If only someone had said earlier. these words all over the place yeah. on Twitter and at school board meetings for you a year and a half and to. were maligned problem. for it, maligned yeah. Yeah. even in the pages of the New York Times right? at times. So it goes on to say, like, basically, this is going to t- have a huge drag on the economy in the future. These are diminished lifetime earnings, a significant educational ga- gap. Uh, you know, not good for the generation that went through this. Obviously, it also means more mental health problems because they didn't have stability. They didn't have right. structure. In some cases, it means, as we've seen, increased absenteeism yeah, from school because it turns out that when you tell kids that school doesn't matter, 
They don't think the school matters. Yeah. So more than a quarter of students were chronically absent in the 2021-22 school year, up from 15% before the pandemic. That means an additional 6.5 million students joined the ranks of the chronically absent. So that's not helping. And then, of course, people got used to this. And you, by the way, you see this you know, from people who went to college during the pandemic and then are in the workforce and now think it's not a big deal to not show up to work. Yeah. Like what no names. Saying. I'm just going to say normalized some things we shouldn't yeah. have normalized. You no, know, a um, listener, a listener asked us about if we wanted to discuss and uh, and she or he had another uh, source about the absenteeism problem. But one of the things that jumped out at that New York Times editorial was pointing out that the absenteeism rate in Oakland public schools is 61 percent. Yeah. So yeah. Well, then we get to like possible solutions. First of all, there's this galling paragraph. Since the beginning of the pandemic, many parents and educators mm -hmm, have been raising the alarm about the effects of grief, isolation, and other disruptions on the mental health of their children. Okay, again, if the solution is to reconnect people to school, you yeah. shouldn't have been calling the people who were calling to get back in school trash, right. racist, wine moms. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, maybe could have held off on that. But anyway, as usual... The solution for all of this is more money and mm -hmm. more programs for the exact people who screwed yeah. this up. Like Randy Weingarten. Right. So that's that's my concern because I agree that this needs funding because one of the ways to get out of this is intensive mm -hmm. tutoring. That's one way you get people yeah. caught up. But that takes a lot of money. And this is something um, that Glenn Youngkin is pushing for, Yes, right? the state of Virginia, it says, took a big swing at the problem of learning loss when it announced yep. what it is being described as a statewide tutoring program. But high-impact tutoring, which is a thing that is that has been studied to actually change and show progress on this, on this issue, yeah. high-impact tutoring is labor-intensive and depends on high-quality instruction. It is most yeah. likely to succeed when sessions are held at least three times a week during school hours with well-trained, well-managed tutors, working with four or fewer students at a time. So that is a huge effort. And again, the pandemic itself was always going to cause problems. It's not that we would be at no loss, right? Right. right. But we we didn't have to give all of this away. No, we, didn't we really have to, we didn't we have to handicap. Whole, we dug, we helped them dig the hole deeper. Yeah, we didn't have to handicap a generation, but we did. And the the problem is when we're trying to figure out how to solve it, people like Randy Weingarten are there with their their hands out yeah. for their money to go and solve the problem that they created. And that is why people are leaving to homeschool. Did I mention that I wrote about that in Reason Magazine? That's why people are leaving to homeschool because they're like, screw you guys and your lack of accountability. We're right. taking this into our own hands. Or so that, I, or that, you know. The, the money is going, you know, for teacher raises when I know a lot of teachers work hard, but again, this, a lot of it is needed for the kids. Yes. So, well, and one of the things, one of the few things they suggested in here that actually does sound sensible, which of course will never happen because teachers unions won't let it happen. Right. One of the ways, again, studied that is a good way to bring kids up to speed, obviously, is to increase the pace at which they learn. How do they do that? One way is by exposing them to teachers who have had an extraordinary impact on their students. The center, this is the Center for Research on Education Outcomes at Stanford, proposes offering these excellent teachers, wait for it, extra compensation in exchange for taking extra students into their classes. Highly trained, dedicated teachers have long been known to be the most reliable path to better educational outcomes, but finding them at any scale has always been difficult. 
perhaps if we paid them more, (laughs) they would be more incentivized and there would be more of them. Randy Weidgarten will never let this happen. No. Yeah. That's why people like her are the problem. Yeah. No, that's it. And the other, the other thing is the other attempts at trying to reduce absenteeism rates that include paying kids is insane. Yeah. I mean, that's just never going to, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to work. And again, we saw it and and a good friend of ours told me, he's spoken to a public school teacher uh, in the city. And she was talking at the time about during the the pandemic, how much she loved uh, being home and said she hoped never to go back into the classroom. There you go. I mean, because everything is going to be great. There's one line in here. One last line I want to highlight just because I think this is telling. Perhaps this itself is a now it can be told. Researchers have long known that American students grow more alienated from school the longer they attend (laughs) and that they often fall off the school engagement cliff. At which yep. point they no longer care. Okay, first of all, this this signals to me that perhaps we have a fundamental problem with how we're serving students. If the longer they're there, the less they want to be there. Yes. Just a, just a thought. So we may want to look into that. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to say this sense of disconnection stems from a feeling among high school students in particular that no one at school cares about them and that the courses they study bear no relationship to the challenges they face in the real world. So... By all means, why don't we abandon them, put them on Zoom, and teach them about CRT for two years? Yeah. That's, that priorities. was the solution. That's what the priorities are. That okay. was the solution. So anyway, just a way to go, guys. Now it can be told. And frankly, now that I see that research, researchers have long known that American students grow more alienated from school the, more they, the longer they yeah. attend, I'm like, the more flexibility and school choice and money to parents to use in the ways mm-hmm. they see fit, the better, because I can't think of a public institution that has failed more obviously and more detrimentally than public schooling in the past several years, particularly well, in blue metro areas. And, and and think about how school choice is really their, you know, that is their arch enemy. The arch yep. enemy for, for the unions is, is that because they know that there are better alternatives and the solution is not to improve their schools to keep up to the standards of the other you know, charter schools, for example, but rather to eliminate the charter schools. By the way, a school choice bill lost in the Texas legislature the other day, thanks to the opposition of 21 Republicans, 18 of which I believe were endorsed by the teachers union. So Uh, just so you know, it's not, it's winning in a bunch of places and it will continue to win in a bunch of places. But I do think creativity is what's required here. And the Randy Weingartens of the world will never allow it. So we got to work around them. That's right. But don't blame them because there was another panel expert. He was on the Bill Maher show. And do you remember this? And he, they were asking him and he said, yeah, you know, he took full responsibility. He wanted more. Do you remember this? He said mm-hmm. he was hoping for more of a shutdown. He now regrets. He understands it. But, you know, he's just asking for a little bit of humility and grace and a little yeah. understanding that we tried our best. Yep. Because there was so much humility and grace for those who disagreed yeah. with them. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, All right. I you, have, know what, you, know what, yeah. you know what humility and grace don't get you? Your economic gains back for the rest of your life. Because you missed life. two years of school. Hold on. I have yes. to do a quick oh. snoop briefing. Oh, yes. So what this is this is very quick. Okay. This is very quick. Earlier this week, the rapper sent a tweet that sent everyone off the deep end oh. because it said he was giving up smoke. He had <laughs> talked to his family. You mean weed he, or weed? Yeah. Okay. He said, I'm done with smoke. I'm going smokeless. Oh. And everybody was like, no. And it looked like he had had a talk with his family and it looked serious, like there was a graphic. <laughs> and everyone was like, oh my gosh, can Snoop really do this? And also what kind of terrible 
toll was it taking on his life that that he's made this decision? So we were all kind of like concerned. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, this week he's back with this. He has a deal with Solo Stove, which is a smokeless wood stove. Oh, he got it. For hanging out on your deck or in your backyard or driveway. And on one hand, huge amount of press for this. So he's laughing all the way to the bank. I do feel a little toyed with. I was concerned about Snoop. He teased us. He did. And now he's it's working because I just plugged solo stoves. See, there you go. You just (laughs) did. Solo stoves in performance kitchen. Okay. Yeah. I have a shout out. And these are, these are, you're going to enjoy this. Well, first of all, shout out to listener Dan Chase, who I ran into after, after church last night, a very nice fellow who says that, you know, we're doing better than ever. Keep up the good work. But here's another one for you. This is Catholic shout outs here. I was hanging out, Mary Catherine, at the uh, Knights of Columbus bar and uh, this older fellow, he was telling me how he's not a big fan of local news, but you know, he'll tune into local Fox on Sundays, you know, because he likes to watch Shannon Bream. I said, well, if you know Shannon Bream, you must know Mary Catherine Ham. And he says, do I? <laughs> do I? I have been following Mary Catherine Ham for years, he says. He and his wife, and this is Al and Sue Grossi, and they said, oh, she's so great. I, I remember her. I remember her with the tragedy, with her first husband. And I remember listening to her when she was on a show with Fred Grandy. <laughs> And you know what I that told was, him? I, yeah. I, I said it, it was well, it was all downhill after that. Yeah. It was Fred yes, Grandy. I, no, so Grandy, I was actually the post-Grandy era, but oh. I, I think I overlapped as a guest. So Grandy was the morning show right before me. Oh, okay. And then yes, and then I became Huge a member following. of the new cast. But yes. They yes, Fred Grandy from the gopher from the love boat, but I'm That's sure nobody correct. wanted to bring that up. But anyway. Fans who have been following you for many, many years. That's so kind. I love that. Good. I think that wraps up. We're good. This episode of Getting Hammered. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube. You can follow me on Twitter at Victorino Mattis. I want to wish you all uh, a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I hope our hour plus bonus episode has gotten you through your commute to see your loved ones. Just remember, the Vince Lombardi rest stop is closed. Good luck. I am at MK Hammer on Twitter, at MK Hammer Time on Instagram. I also wrote a piece about not politicizing your Thanksgiving for The Spectator magazine. Oh, good. So just the food is good. You know, we can we can lay off on the politics as much as possible. In fact, what you should do is tell all of your family and friends, just refer them to our podcast and be like, look, they're not going to drive you crazy, but you can just chat with them and then maybe we'll chat together after the holidays you know, or you just, know just... yes or you know what i do i i'm making a a giant picture of my manhattans oh, and well, everybody will be it. happy yeah that should do it okay everybody enjoy your thanksgiving be thankful for what you have prayers up for everybody who does have to be a part at this time of year and enjoy your vittles thanks for getting hammered responsibly this has been a nebulous media podcast